Aria in the Grotto Pod, and so am I. And so is Bridget. We're all here. Uh, I, of course, am your unpublished host, Larry Rose. And no book for me. Next to me is uh, your published host, uh, author of Broad Strokes, 15 Women Who Changed Art. Who made art and made history in that order. Made art and made history in that order. I have two things to say. Writer famous. <laughs> Writer famous. Bridget Quinn. Yes. To all the people at my book launch. Last I'm night. Mm-hmm. That was last night. And it was quite an event. It uh, was. It was fun. It, so fun. It was high energy. It yeah. was for a good cause. I know. That was the part that made me the happiest. I have to back up, though, okay. for all the writer peeps out there, that you're not unpublished. Just That's because true. You don't I just don't have a book. I've published lots and lots. Tons. And I have published tons. Right. And now I've also published so a book. it's more Hooray. accurate to describe myself as your bookless host. Yes, exactly. Although that, even that's not accurate. I do have a book. It's just not. Oh, published. published. Oh, yeah. f- I have. This is my fourth book. Unpublished. I have three, three unpublished books. So you have a books. 25% success ratio. Yeah. Which, and know. if anybody wants to call me, just do, because I have three books in my drawer. And then, you know, kick one over to me, because I got one, too. Today, okay. yeah. our guest is a published author. Yes, Chris Cook. Christopher D. Cook. Ooh. Not to be confused with the other Christopher Cook, who was uh, a screenwriter. Oh, that's why he uses the D. That's what I learned while Googling. Uh, what we're going to talk about today, I think, will be off the charts interesting because Chris Cook blurs the line between activist and writer. And I think he might even not even say writer. He might say journalist. journalist. I think so, too. That's why I was going to say it's not really a blurred line because he's not writer and activist. He he's is, a writer activist. He's a writer activist. But what I want to find journalist out, activist. is he a writer activist or is he an activist writer? That's a good question. And where does this come from? You know, that's um, a really good question. <clears throat> it's really easy now in the times that we live in. Totally, everybody's an activist. In fact, I've had to stop listening to some podcasts because some of the comedians that used to be funny are now activists. I'm talking about you, Mark Maron. Sorry. Can't they be funny and activists? I'm just curious. I, don't I know. haven't yet seen it happen. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep an open mind. I will say humor is hard. In activist circles because sometimes. Very, and, and in fact, I would say Chris Cook, who is one of my favorite grotto people, is very earnest. So, but I mean, I admire earnestness in this day and age too, though, just because there's so much cynicism. Right. And so I like his earnestness. Although having come up in the Letterman age myself, right. you know, irony was very popular and very comfortable yeah. for us detached Gen Xers. I'm also a Gen Xer, and we I do enjoy irony. Our, just lost our millennial audience. I know. Sorry. Millennials, Go stay back with to us. your Xboxes. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, that I also like irony, but someone like David Letterman, well, he's maybe not a great example, but there can be irony that is just a way of being able to say your earnestness yeah. in a way that doesn't embarrass you and the listener. Chris Cook, known as Around These Places... An earnest guy, yep. An active guy, yep. Always putting something together. Right now, he's got some Trump thing going on that we're going to oh, yeah. talk to him about. That is actually a pretty cool thing. Yeah, where he's trying to get uh, active. I mean, how many times do I say active? A lot of active. I, I'm just he is active. I'm only using passive verbs from now until the end of this podcast. That's going to be hard. I know because it's also bad writing. It is terrible <laughs> writing. Never use kids. Don't use the passive voice. Yeah, what the active people, voice can do. You'll, your editor will get on you for that for sure. Anyway, he's trying to uh, motivate. Mm. Uh, a bunch of writers to sort of tap into their activist side and do writing that makes a difference. It really makes an impact. And investigations. And investigations. Uh, because, you know, what's happening right now, I don't need to tell you, is that newsrooms don't have money for the kind of investigative journalism <laughs> no, you don't that used me. to happen. So where is it going to come from? 
Well, and you know what? There's not a lot of money in it for anyone. Well, and that's another thing I want to talk to Chris about is what sort of sacrifices he's made to follow this path rather than going the feature. He could be interviewing Taylor Swift for Vanity Fair, for all I know. Right. But he's chosen to really go down this path. He has a book uh, published in 2004 called uh, Diet for a Dead Planet, Big Business, and the Coming Food Crisis. Sort of takes Eric Schlosser one step further. Was it before or after? It was after. Okay. I, I remember them as being vaguely around the same time, but I was in the haze of New Parenthood, so I don't. Yeah, I think Schlosser. Well, I remember uh, giving it to a student in 1998. Okay, well, so well, it, was, yeah. it was a ways before that. Got it. Um, well, uh, so we got a lot to talk about. I think he has a very. I'm curious also to see uh, what fed this. You know, mm-hmm. what what in his background led to him making these decisions and becoming this sort of go getter, earnest activist type of reporter. Yep. Um. Let's go get them. All right, let's do it. Uh, hi, Chris. Hello. You're the first person to bring notes into the Grotto Pod, so it's sort of a, it's a new dawn. We already did our intro, Chris, so we're we're all rolling. Uh, and here's you know, I got you into the Grotto Pod today. I practically begged you to come to the Grotto Pod today. Is that true? Yes, uh, there's there's uh, video evidence of that, I believe. And, video, and I, I appreciate that. And it's not just because you are only the second male besides me to enter the Grotto Pod. That is not true. It's true. Oh my god! We went mobile for Poe and Ethan, so I think oh. I'll, I'll be like Neil Gorsuch there and just say uh, I have no comment on that. Look at him already going political. Oh my he god, can't he's help himself. so good. He cannot help himself. So timely. I just shouted right into the mic. Apologies, everyone. Apologies. Anyways. Uh, <clears throat> All joking aside, Chris, I think you occupy a unique place at the Grotto. I think you're the only one who really does what you do, and I think uh, you have a unique story. I think you've made some sacrifices along the way, and I want to get to the bottom of it right now. So I'm going to start out by asking you a pretty basic question. Sure. Are you a writer or an activist? Oh, goodness. <laughs> wow. Right to the heart of it. Yeah, you got That's right into it about. there. Yeah. That's, that's good stuff. I'm going to go um, I, I think the two are not mutually exclusive. Okay. I think I've made my my career out of uh, some. I no, no, go ahead. Someone's out there talking. There's it happens. People chatting. You know, one as of the uh, features of the Grotto yeah. Pod podcast. Here, we is... don't know who that is, but we got people passing through the hallways. Right, right. Sound. Right. That's sound. good. It's yeah. people at work. We want people but, um, to know that this doesn't happen in a vacuum, just yeah. in a right. broom closet. No, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting, worth, worthy question that I think we all need to ask ourselves, and I think that the uh, standard definitions uh, are, form way too much of a divide between the two. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of investigative journalists see themselves in one form or another as being activists. Um, maybe they don't call themselves that, but they're in it for a reason, which is not just because they like to take notes and write articles, but mm-hmm. they care about the world and they like to investigate stuff. Right, because you could have chosen to go the Vanity Fair route and mm-hmm. interviewed Taylor Swift and made $400,000. so wish, you know, that, you, that was in you? Done that. <laughs> you Seriously. You can still do it. It's not too late. I was going to say, if you want to get to the bottom of this, I can just give you my bank statements. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that'll be necessary. Good. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you say you so would love to do that, but I think what you mean is you'd so love to be a person who would do that, but I don't think you could. It's not in me. You know, I I often wish that it was um, or that somewhere in between what I do and and what that is would be more terrain that uh, interested me or that I thought I 
could get my head around doing. Um, and it's just, you know, I love, so for instance, I love sports. <laughs> Me too. And I appreciate three sports fans in the road. Big sports in this fan. big room here, you know. Uh, no, and I actually really appreciate sports writing. And in one of my, like, writerly fantasies at some point, you know, mm-hmm. um, when I'm way older, way down the road, you know, I'll be writing sports. <laughs> that is that is my retirement uh, fantasy as well. You guys, yeah. robots are going to do sports writing. No, oh, no way. That's what I've no heard. Way. I tell you, my favorite job I've, I've ever had was high no school way. sports. Yeah, yeah. So, I started out actually writing, and it sports. paid fifty bucks a story. I do think sports writing. Hey, you guys paid of, more than I did. That's fair. <laughs> Big newspapers. Everything yeah. paid more back then, even my, in high school. My first paid story. I was a sports writer in high school, and my first paid story when I was like sixteen years old was uh, for the Suburban Weekly. Where was, was that? Like Brookline, Mass. Brookline, Mass. Oh, you're okay. from the East Coast. Mass. I yeah. thought you were from California. I don't oh. know why I thought that. I guess I've blended in. So I wanted to go back there, actually, because I want to see get to the genesis of, of how you became, how you chose this path. And I was going to ask, you know, an overarching question, like, well, what did you want to be first? Mm-hmm. A I mean, writer I mean, or an first I was sports a writer, total apparently. baseball fanatic, and I wanted to be a sportscaster. Were you a Red Sox guy? Uh, yes, very okay. much. And what era is this? Always, not were, but always. Mm-hmm. Oh, still a Red Sox like guy. How are we talking that like, down in San Francisco? You know, we haven't had the... Uh, Great fortune yet of a Giants Red Sox World Series, and then my real allegiances oh. would come out. But um, then things will come to blows. But I really I wanted to be a, a sportscaster, and wow. then when I you know I just loved sports, and I I did some sports in high school. You know, um, I wasn't exactly like an all star in anything, but <laughs> um, and I just I got interested in writing and journalism and in high school. Was and, there a teacher? There was. You know, there isn't there often. <laughs> There's usually a teacher yeah. or a parent or an older sibling. Yeah, yeah. No, I think what it is when you're when you're young and somebody tells you that you uh, are good at something or could be good at something, you kind of go in that direction. You know, just like, hey, go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then if it doesn't interest you, you move on. You know, but at least in that and, – and it just grabbed me, you know, that writing was something that um, – that I could do, but it wasn't just about, you know, spelling or grammar or putting words together. It's sort of a process of thinking, you know, an engagement with the world. Like it's sort of. So uh, this is interesting to me, though, because it's about me. Um, it's always about you. It's always Larry. about me. Uh, so, what were the first books you read as a kid? Were they sports books? Uh, the ones that I remember that I can come up with at the moment, uh, very dichotomous. <laughs> One is uh, Strange But True Baseball Stories. Okay. And the other is uh, Kerouac on the Road. That is really interesting, uh, though he did play football really in became, college. He so did, you know, sports so that helps. Um, and that was really a, a, a serious uh, sort of literary uh Fire lighting for me, like that, just really. How old were you when you read it? Because I didn't read that till college. I was way ahead of you, man. And this is interesting. As a, as a, as a sixteen, as a young woman, did you read it? Of course, and I was did... super into Kerouac. Me too. Really? I I liked On the Road, but I was really into Dharma Bums. That was the one that yeah. just blew the top I, of my head off. I agree. That was actually my that favorite. was the one. Yeah. I suspect something Love about uh, about On the Road. What do you suspect? That he wasn't actually participating. What do you mean? That he was in the back seat. Watching. Oh, oh, maybe. 
That would make sense. As a writer, you know, I've got some interesting yeah. friends I'm going to write yeah. about. All right. No, I think that was kind of, I think he even copped to that. I yeah. think so too, yeah. It's like running around chasing interesting people his whole life. <laughs> yeah, because the Mad Men were always, what, what was the line? Burn, 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 yeah. something like that. <laughs> uh, did you read Ball Four as a kid? No. The Jim Bouton no. book? Because that was the one for me where ball players were actually people. Oh, they are. Yeah, it was really controversial know, because know. it showed them like drinking, you know, and checking oh, out yeah, women I and, and Mickey that. Mantle being hung over. And I was like, man, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I remember? Brian's song. Oh, oh yeah. Moses, that about did me in. Wow, I, did you ever see it? One. You never watched that? <gasps> no. Oh, my gosh. That was such the 70s. Uh, it was like movie of the week, right? Or was it a, yeah, was it was it a movie always movie? On, well, I saw it on TV. You know, it would be on once a year. Oh, uh, and everyone gosh. would watch it except me because it was on the same time as West Side Story. But then I eventually oh, watched wow. it. Mm, Interesting was... you bring that up, though, because I just saw a story in uh, the Chicago, whatever their paper is, Tribune still, uh, about Gail Sayers and how he's got dementia. Oh, my gosh. I know all those guys probably. Oh, well, you got to check it out because right. it's uh, it's J- James timely Conn, in a Billy weird way. Yeah, so African-American, mm-hmm. white, mm-hmm. friendship, uh, Ball playing, camaraderie, mm. death. Death. One. Yeah. Sort of right. baseball. Early death. Finn. Football. Football. Uh, I don't think, well, I, I think Huckleberry Finn is too no, strong. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> too much thought into it. But. All right. Well, no, I don't even mean me. high-minded. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think, I mean, I haven't seen it since the 70s, but I think it was pretty racially ahead of its time in a way mm. that maybe Huckleberry Finn yeah, is just not the in quite roommates. the same way. Yeah. So, so you come out of high school as a writer yeah. But wanting to be a broadcaster or a sports writer. Well, by the, before then, I had, the migrated, start I had to... migrated from sports to news. Okay. Uh, and, and this is your high school newspaper high school, or the suburban paper? high school paper. Um, well, both, but primarily my high school paper, um, which was a pretty serious high school paper. Like we sought out serious stories and we tried to win, you know, those Columbia Journalism mm-hmm. Awards and all that. Oh my gosh, that jazz. is amazing. That's such and a good deal. It was, you know, it was it was uh, I don't want to say fun. It was very competitive and intense, but but I I, I did start to get um, more and more interested. I mean, it came from a my family had political backgrounds, so it wasn't completely So tell us a little bit about unknown that. Known to me to, you know, I mean, my grandparents were communists. Red diaper Socialists. babies. Um, There's the East Coast part so, right there. And, you know, and the Jewish and, part. And uh, mother was political and I just kind of grew up, you know, and it wasn't exactly fed to me, but it was just around. It was around. And, and then I sort of look around in the world as I'm growing up and see all these things that seem messed up and ridiculous to me. And I start getting political in high school around uh, Central America Mm-hmm. And the uh, back then it was uh, Reagan and the Contras. I was going to say it's the eighties, yeah. The, uh, the sort of American Monroe Doctrine domination of Central America. And Let me ask you, how does this play though? If it's Brookline High School, yeah. was it Brookline High School? Mm-hmm. That's a pretty wealthy high school. Yeah. So, did you find your people in that setting as sort of a as a, as a mm-hmm. budding young activist type? Yeah, these left leanings. Actually, yeah, I mean, it's it's also seen as sort of a liberal suburb, you know, or used mm-hmm. to be anyway. Um, and more of the activism was actually around. I mean, there was some around Central America, and then there was a lot around nukes, actually. Right. And that no was nukes. where actually my first activism was when I was in eighth grade, starting up an anti-nuke group, and 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 then in high school, joining other anti-nuke groups and. We even had the Third World Awareness Club. 
Anything local? Like, yeah, I mean, actually, we made it local. Like we, we as a Third World Awareness Club, we got the town of Brookline to divest its pensions from South Africa. Oh my gosh, that's incredible! I <laughs> think that's so amazing. With a little King, who was this like you know great political mm-hmm. guy in, in Boston at the time, um, and that was kind of just to kind of finish that little point. Like that was an interesting maybe blending of activism and journalism in the mm-hmm. sense that. Um, you know, I was there to cover it, but we were, we were sitting in the room and in this like town hall thing, and we were basically not going to leave the room until they uh, made a decision to divest. <laughs> okay, that's something I want to just I, not to jump ahead at all. But you had said when we started that um, some investigative journalists look at themselves as kinds of activists, but one of the things I find so shocking in American journalism is this idea that you have to be so like theoretically fair, that you're impartial, Mm -hmm. which is a kind of lie, in my opinion, no matter what, and is dangerous, possibly, as we've seen. So what in, I mean, if you're a student and you're a journalism student in high school, you know, what are your teachers saying? What are the people who are running your program Mm -hmm. saying? Because isn't the the message of journalism when you go to J school or something, you know, you have to be impartial? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And not just J school, but, um, in the newspaper world, right. which I spent at least a little time in. And um, I think that there are different ways to draw those lines. I think there's a way to, I be, agree. to be fair by, you know, if you write an article that accuses somebody of something, something that you get there, you give them the chance to respond and you include their comments in the response and you give them their, their moment to do that. Um, you know, I, and I think that that is a basic uh, criterion for any journalism any good serious journalism is that you you give the other side it's not you know there's not never like such a bifurcated thing like oh the other side but you know I, I I think that a big problem in journalism is the definition of who's what's at stake and who's in the room and what those sides are though I think that what do you mean by uh, that what I mean is you know it gets pitched as liberal media okay, conservative got media mm-hmm. but, but no beyond that um even those definitions presuppose, presuppose that there's just um, such a narrow lens of possibility for what the story is. So, like, you get PBS labeled liberal, and for a lot of folks, um, they're not that liberal. In terms of uh, the kinds of guests and views that they'll have on, uh, they will never have somebody articulate a socialist view, unless it's Bernie Sanders maybe, uh, or a Marxist view. You you know, people can like disagree with what that is, but they will never ever, but they will have a libertarian, they'll have a wild deregulated laissez-faire free marketeer, uh, they'll have right-wingers, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute are just de rigueur on there. And then, quote, the left mm-hmm. is a sort of mainline Democrat. And you know that is what it is, but there's no there, that's that should be the middle, <laughs> mm. and and again there's they'll just never ever bring that into the conversation. Not just PBS, but like journalism across the board. In terms of you know, I think that the the underlying basis of both good journalism and the foundation of bias is what questions get asked and who are you asking those questions of. And it's also the quality of the writing, I think. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go back to the growing Chris Cook, though. <laughs> the growing, okay, where are we now? Where are we, we just graduated high school. Where'd you go to oh college? My yeah, this is a long story. It so, is. Um, 
Oberlin College in Ohio. Not a surprise. Um, yep, not a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> not the conservatory Thank of the college. You, you know, no, and I didn't even go to the conservatory. Um, I try to fit into my own self-styled stereotypes of myself. You know, <laughs> try best, not to as, disappoint. As as I don't want to disappoint. It's so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> you um, couldn't write you as a character because it's, just it's too, stock. Stock character. Too I don't believe this. Come on. Oh, gosh. You know. Um, so so in Oberlin, I immediately made a beeline to the campus paper. Um, now, was and, there any, not to yeah. cut you off. Because that's what we do. I've yeah, heard. we've gotten a little yeah, bit of trouble yeah. um, for this. At this point, was there any thought that – so, again, I'm interested in the balance between the writer and the mm-hmm. activist and the, mm-hmm. and the meshing of that. Yeah. Was there any point where you had been involved in actions and oh, thought yeah. maybe this is a better way to go after this than writing? Yeah. I mean I don't think that I always even made a judgment about which way was better. But you know, there are certain moments where – Better fit, more effective. It was um, there were times where it was just the situation I was in. So, for instance, we had divestment movement around South Africa. I came into college in '86, and it was sort of toward the late end of that movement. But it was kind of when it was starting to actually succeed. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had some activist moments, and I actually got you know um, I don't know what. Uh, we were part of – we were called the Oberlin 59 and we were basically like – Like the Chicago 7? Yeah. You know, it was it sounds really good except, except for the Oberlin part, like Chicago. Yeah, you couldn't talk another person to even it out at 60. All right. I was part of the Chicago 22. OK. Oh, I like that's, it. Yeah, I like good. it. Yeah. No, but, oh, no, Oberlin 59 is awesome. And we were, awesome. Yeah. And we were, we were up – You know, we took over You know, the library where they had the trustees were meeting and banged on the windows and were shouting. And it wasn't a moment where I was thinking – well, maybe I should be covering this as a journalist. I was just there because mm-hmm. I was so concerned as an activist. I wasn't thinking, well, which hat should I put on in the moment? You know, and I think there are times where journalists come up against this all the time, you know, especially maybe in, in war zones or, or disasters where, you know, there's something right in front of them that's happening that requires a, a humanitarian response that's not purely journalistic, um, you know, and, and – you know, this wasn't a case of somebody dying right in front of me and needing first aid, but it was something where you're talking about our college continuing to give its money to investment portfolios that finance apartheid. Um, and I can't just calmly write about that. I mean, I did write articles about it as well, and they were not uh, – you know, they were journalism. You know, mm-hmm. They were not uh, screaming editorials. They were not beds. Okay. <laughs> yeah, um, and so I think it's just something where, at the, I guess, at the base of it, I think that we just need to be intellectually honest about what we're doing. And so, if I'm writing a story that I'm involved in in some way, I have to disclose that, or I have to separate the two. Right. And I generally separate the two. It's very. I, I don't even know if I can think of a case where, you know, I, I think that's where you have to draw the line. You know, I don't think that it's uh, journalists can't uh, protest or go into a march. Uh, Although know. local papers I mean, think I mean, that. Well, they do, I know, and I completely disagree. I just do local too. papers. Yeah. I mean, a lot of media has yeah. dinged people for doing that. Yeah. But to have I mean, no private going. life. I mean, to right. me, not going is a bias. Interesting, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's something we don't always think about, like, not talking about politics is 
political. <laughs> and we need to do that. We need to live time, you know, we have to not talk about politics. I'm pointing my finger. And Larry? Yeah, I often, that's kind of my, my thing. You know, um, I lived in Norway in 1984 and 85, which were big years in America, especially with, you know, a lot of things that were happening in South America, but, you know, with the whole Reagan, uh, all that stuff which all the words are escaping me now. The point is what I found as a teenager there reading their news accounts and our news accounts was realizing that there was a whole other side that we weren't hearing. Mm -hmm. That was a very enlightening. And also that Norwegian newspapers, there are multiple newspapers every day. And whatever color the... Um, the headline is written in tells you the bias of the newspaper, mm. basically. So oh, really? here, if it had a, if it said New York Times in red, It'd you would red. know it was Republican. Oh, it's Republican. Huh. But people buy multiple. Oh, this was thirty years ago. Bought multiple yeah. versions and read each, wow. and then would t come you know, to but, a conclusion. But I would argue that thirty years ago, people were more likely to do that here. Oh, too. maybe so. There maybe were so. Fewer echo but, but just that there was into. there was no mm -hmm. sense. Like we had this. I was shocked by that because I grew up with a sense that oh, the media is fair and impartial mm -hmm. and uh, not taking a point of view when and found out, oh, my media is completely taking a point of view. It's just mm -hmm. hidden. Mm -hmm. And the Norwegian media was taking a point of view and it was not hidden. Yeah. Like you yeah. knew what you were getting. I right. mean, we've become a little bit that way with Fox News and Breitbart, you know. I think we've become yeah. a lot that way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, people definitely know where to go to get Unfortunately, it just becomes back. the echo chamber. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it does. The echo chamber is... is like, how do you, it's as a, a journalist, thing. reach people? How do you no, reach real, the unconverted? It's, it's, it's so hard to do that. You know, and I write for um, – I've written for plenty of mainstream outlets, yeah. publications, LA Times, Christian Science Monitor, The Atlantic, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, more and more of my work appears in alternative, you know, publications, whether it's like The Nation or Mother Jones or The Progressive or something like that. And, and the, the audiences are, are, are different and they're very like now more than ever just hyper politically channeled and somewhat segregated. And it's hard to uh, – I, th I think you know they say preach to the converted or something. It's not like we're all equally converted or in the same way. Right. So there's still value. But it's got to make the comment people. section easier to handle. Because everyone's like, no, right on, I don't think not so. Even in those I don't think so. They, oh, oh, that's right. The trolls. In, but not the even trolls. they. I mean, my yeah. experience, at least in San Francisco media, is you just take the tact a little bit off of what this person wants. Even you could be in the same arena or the same way of thinking, but you don't have quite the right take on right, it, you're and not still get taken down. Well, and I'm, and I'm, you know, on one level. I'm glad if people with those perspectives are yeah. reading the piece. I don't know if they read it. It doesn't right. look like they read it. Right. Um, That's more and, it. and then it's utterly sometimes just so grotesque where people go, not speaking as even a lefty but just a human being. Um, you know. But I think this is a huge challenge. I mean I find ways to share my work through Facebook and Twitter and other places where I'm trying to actually – get into other audiences, you know, whether I'm sharing it on a Trump Facebook page or wow. Republican Party Facebook pages in different states, you know, different things like that. How um, does that go down? I mean, do you feel personally <laughs> scared ever? Or? I don't feel scared. I, I mean, you know, sometimes it's, it's a little heavy reading the comments. And so, you know, I was recently trolled and called loser and I should wear a pink hat and a pink yeah. hat you and should I I'm like a pussy hat you does wear a lot of hats cool. I mean I probably you should like you're a hat I can guy. get you one I'm a hat uh, guy you know the uh, nastiest comments I ever got in a piece was something I wrote in a blog called 61 reasons to hate the grateful dead 
Ooh, oh, well, that's just got, asking for it. It somehow got to a Grateful Dead site, and these people wanted me not only dead, but dead in very awful ways. <laughs> and they were not grateful at all. No, just no, dead. they were not mellow. <laughs> I hate to bring this up because it's kind of crass, but you made, do it. you made a career decision yeah. that wasn't going to lead to a comfortable way of life. <laughs> Was that a conscious decision? Was it something you felt? You know, we just talked about it earlier, how you probably don't have it in you to go interview Taylor Swift for Vanity Fair. But at some point, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure when you start out, you're like, I'm not even thinking about that. Don't even care. But at some point, it's got to get frustrating, especially the way things have happened in journalism over the last few years. I remember you... Uh, maybe last year, writing a piece about Bernie Sanders for the Atlantic, and it was like hundred bucks, awesome. Well, it was actually hundred fifty. Yeah. Oh, sorry, hundred fifty. So, oh, but my it, gosh. it used to be more. It's despicable. It's really despicable. Yeah. But how do I you mean, how yeah. do you deal with that? I mean, this this is a perfect expression of that. I wrote a piece. This is even more sort of ridiculously poignant. Uh, I wrote a piece a few years ago when I was on food stamps, and I grew up on food stamps as a kid, and then I was on them again because things were getting I remember rather this piece. rough. Yeah. And I wrote a piece for Salon. Um, I think I read that. Yeah. The, Without knowing the, it was the you. The Shame and Pride of Joining Food Stamp Nation, which is an awful title. I, I don't have, you know, but anyway. Shame or pride. I don't know if <laughs> I have either of them. I have maybe many emotions in between the two. But, <laughs> but um, Hunger being so one of them. Hunger. Well, no, I'm yeah. okay, you know. Um, but, um, no, I was paid $175 for the piece. <laughs> for a 1600 nice. word piece on I know it's scary. on how on, on exactly the point that Mark was making about the economics of journalism and writing and and how much, you know, breaking it down like here's what it actually looks like when you get paid that much for an article. And that was not a heavily reported article, but you know, I just got without naming names, you know, an offer to do an in-depth Fairly, you know, eighteen hundred word piece that's going to be very reported for three hundred fifty dollars. Oh my gosh! And it's like I can't do it. You know, yeah, of course not. Like, you can't afford at to. At a certain point, you know, when I was, I and, and part of the reason I can't is because I've been doing that for decades, and I've sort of paid those dues. We all pay dues in some way, and it's like I've done so many underpaid articles that were like investigative, in depth pieces. Um, for four hundred dollars, three hundred dollars. You know, Are you worried it'll ever get to the point where you can't afford to do it anymore? Oh, I think about that all the time. Yeah, you know? and, and so. Uh, and what else can you do? Yeah, I mean, you you have to you know broaden your portfolio, as they say. What does that mean? So, <laughs> I'm trying to sound like some you know business. Know. Okay. You know what you need to do? You need Business-y. to get a platform, and you need to do content. Absolutely, I need content. No, you need to work I'm on a, your platform and provide you're a, content. You're a content, I'm a content dis- provider. No, I'm a discontent provider. That's what I call myself. <laughs> that is the problem, <laughs> right. right there, because people you know, don't want discontent. They want content. But, um, That's what I want. Yeah, yeah, but they you know? they want to even even yeah. they don't want to hear about discontent. But this is a serious. No. Sub- I, mean, I do other work, so I do you know I, I can't even talk about my other work. It pays really well. It's top secret. But it's top secret, and uh, Chris is I just you know I'm a, I, I can't I can't comment either way on Interesting. that. Interesting. This is sounding like a congressional hearing a yeah. little bit. No, I, 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 it's a little heavy. Just to clarify that, you know, I, I write for nonprofits. I write reports. All right. I do research, editing. Not great pay, but it's like your hours are more covered. You're working with an institution, which is nice. You're not completely solo. Is it a reg? It's regular. Mm, you know, it comes and goes, but you know, you try to build up enough of those that there's a semi-steady flow. And uh, but you know, the thing is, there's a there's a <laughs> like 
the uh, the larger economy and my personal economy have gone in like the inverse direction mm. of what they should be going in, right. given my my uh, age and le- and level of accomplishment. Well, yeah, and level of accomplishment, which we all rack up over time, and it starts to become less and less appropriate to do certain things. Right. Even if I could sort of, I could do it. You know, the reality is I could I could do it, but it becomes inappropriate at a certain point to sort of like. Let your skills and experience and knowledge and, and labor go for that sheep. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Um, I wonder if some of that is driven by people trying to get into the marketplace and well, that's, that's the what they'll be paid. Mm-hmm. And especially like internships. Our kids are teenagers. Internships are a thing. You know, yeah. people have internships. There were no internships when I was young. You went really? and got a crappy job. Well, maybe there oh. were. Well, I maybe oh. I just wasn't in places where oh, you, it's possible. Yeah, you should have checked it out. Maybe they weren't in Norway. Um, <laughs> well, then I was back here. But still, okay, I may just not have been clued in enough. But there weren't. There wasn't a culture of internships right. where middle class kids like me at a state school were all saying, "I have an internship at mm. whatever radio station for the summer." Right. That no, but for better and worse, because there's such pressure on them to get these internships. Yeah. You can't you can't just go get a crappy job. You know, in, right. in journalism, you right. hear you know these stories. But they're working for free. They're right. in that yeah. that mindset of like you've worked for free. Now you're making three hundred fifty. That's better than mm-hmm. free. I don't know. This is like I'm making this up, yeah. but maybe that's partly where it comes from. I mean, I think that what's happened is we've always had some of that, and then on top of that, the the whole combination of journal like downsizing across journalism going going on for decades, right. combined with a more saturated labor market, more people just flooding in, combined with the internet. You they'll know, always find someone who will do it for free. They will, or or who's willing to take the three hundred fifty dollars mm-hmm. pay because they're young, they're up and coming, they want to just like get clips. Do you kind of wonder what's going to happen to them though? I mean, it's great now when you're yeah. young and up and coming, and maybe mm-hmm. someone else is paying your bills. Yeah, but eventually you want to up and came. Oh well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm up and gone. <laughs> when you read, um, you know, the whole all yeah. these Jimmy Breslin obituaries mm. oh, yeah. and yeah. think about that world and those guys oh, had yes. just they had big jobs yeah. no, I mean I, I have a, a good old friend who's just like you know a Pulitzer winner who um, you know brilliant journalist great guy uh, he had no journalism background no internships you know came out of college bright guy English degree uh, started off at a major metro newspaper like that is unheard of right that's totally That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And probably had made, I mean, not great money, but okay money of yeah. what other people were making and similar kinds of jobs and yeah. Yeah. and went from there. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I think that there are a couple of things that work. I mean, one is kind of, quote, the economy, but that's just this, like, massive, yeah. amorphous, But isn't the economy thing. good? I thought it was good. Well, but it's good in, in one way and not another way right. in certain sectors and then people within sectors, all that kind of stuff. And it depends on how saturated, like our area of work is, you know, because that fundamentally defines our... Mm-hmm. Right. Also, but, you know, there's also, like, we don't really have powerful unions in writing. We don't have... Are you a member of the writers? Is there a writer's union you're uh, a member of? You know, I, I have been a member yeah. in the past, and, and I need to re-up. <laughs> and there is, you know, the National Writers' Union, there's mm-hmm. the Authors' Guild, there's... Yeah. The they do great. Guild. Authors' Guild does fantastic you know? stuff. Yeah, yeah, they do important stuff, and, and they have these model contracts that you know, they just don't have a lot of power to to really get uh, the industry to, to go with. But, you know, uh, like kill fees, you know, if our editor right. really just decides willy-nilly without great reasons to kill a story, mm-hmm. slay a story, 
Um, it used to be you'd get 50%. Then right. It went down to 33 and then it's 25%. And it's almost the inverse relationship to the formula we used to have for right. uh, what portion of your income is your rent. <laughs> yeah, that's it used to be twenty five percent. Now it's thirty three. Now it's half. Right. <laughs> so there's just or even higher in San Francisco. Of like dichotomous <laughs> journeys. That is rough. So you, yeah. I remember once being in a uh, little group with you, and you had mentioned a memoir, mm. and it involved riding the rails, ah. which really interests mm. me. Tell us a little bit about that. Wow. I, I should let you just. I should let that fiction just stay out there. You know, it's, it's like Kerouacian, not Kevorkian, Kerouacian. I, 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 but the journalist in me has yeah. to admit I didn't ride the rails. Oh, oh man, that's the it. Get whole out. podcast was set <laughs> up around oh, that the whole, premise. The whole pitch was already out. We had like a little nice Chris little Cooker's Jack Kerouac. And I was at mm-hmm. the hashtag cook riding rails. <laughs> riding already, out on the rails. Already been put <laughs> out there. You I've heard, you know, we have hashtag creators. But I did live in, I did drive around the country and live in my car, uh, which That's no, like the modern day. no young man has ever done. <laughs> <laughs> You're the first. So I this was, was in your 20s? I was the first, like, lost meandering. Meandering know, in the, in the 80s or 90s? Yeah. 90s, I yeah, guess it would be. Yeah, early 90s. And, uh, and so I'm finishing a, uh, a memoir about that, but it's mm-hmm. also about growing up on the road, um, which I did a lot of. How so? Um, we, my mom and I, uh, just traveled a lot. It was sort of a, a le- very low income, um, kind of living in the 70s, bouncing around existence, uh, very alternative kind of existence in a lot of ways, and um, some mixture of no money and wanderlust. And, you know, so we were living sometimes in a van or a truck or a tent. <laughs> um, or sometimes actual apartments too. So, <laughs> do you think that set you up to be able to handle the challenges that you've faced choosing the path you've chosen? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I think that it's helped in certain ways, mm-hmm. um, in terms of making giving me a certain sense of adaptability, maybe as well as uh, an interest in seeing different vantage points, both geographic and personal, and and um, I don't know. Yeah, just having different landscapes come through my mind. <laughs> and how did you end up in San Francisco? Uh, that was by car, <laughs> traveling across Drove country with all right my stuff. In. Oh, so it's like right old school, in, random. Old school with my friends. We, a couple of our friends came out from Boston. I graduated um, from Oberlin and had no money, like literally thirty bucks. And what was the plan? Lived in well, I lived in Boston for a while, and I worked at a newspaper, this like scrappy little daily paper up north called the Haverhill Gazette. All right, and Can it you was know like it? no, it was okay. ridiculous. Yeah, I don't have know heard it. of it. No, no. Oh, I thought maybe Larry had though. Oh, I lived in Boston for four months. I don't. Oh, it's okay. almost as well known as two lesser known, two very little known papers nearby. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, yeah. that might help see if, if that you helps. were to tell me those. Yeah, right. but that was that was a good like good training on the job. Just you know, um, running around covering several stories a day and um, trying to get scoops and trying to just get stories out. You know, did you at that time think you would be a newspaper man? I did. I, I mean, that's what's interesting. Um, when I came out of school, I had 
a, a, a reasonably sizable pile of debt from student loans. I, would have, I was thinking that when you said Overland. <laughs> that happens. Yeah, yeah, very expensive. I got the full scholarship, you know, and, and other aid and all that, but I still had, you know, still had um, some loans. Still has a lot of loans. And I thought, you know, I don't really care. I don't care where I live. I don't care about the debt because I'm just going to be a journalist. I'm just going to do journalism, do journalism. And then I started doing that daily journalism job and and I pretty pretty much hated it. <laughs> oh. Well, no, so no, no, no. Like that's what about it? Did you? I, I'm going to pull that one back. Yeah, pull, back. Reel that one pull back. it back. Pull it back. There was a lot about it that I didn't like. <laughs> it was great training. I would recommend it actually for anybody coming into journalism to just do that. Mm-hmm. I do do more of it than I did even, but it's good. It's great training actually, and and in well, all kinds of ways, you know. You, but it's like. I, I guess what I mean to say about what it, what I grew to, to not like about it, which is probably actually a, not just a nicer way to put it, but a more accurate way to put it, is um, the racing around after stories that I didn't have a deep understanding of, and I had no time mm. to get a, a deep understanding about. That's what I was going to ask. And if I you just didn't have enough readers, didn't have enough room, and yeah, and that space. was it. You know, it's like I loved the reporting, the writing, interesting people, deadline pressure. Like that was all cool. Now, you know, when, when, when you guys were saying earlier about uh, journalists having a point of view, having a political point of view, I think when people say journalists should not have a point of view, they're talking about daily journalism. Mm. They're talking about the guy running around getting this turn. Like, I don't right. want to hear this guy's point of view. I want to know how many cats were up that tree. Right. That we had to get down. I think it used to apply to all journalists. I think there was an idea in America when there was just the big three networks that you were just getting the news that there was no spin. That there was an no, honorable idea. I mean, I guess that's I guess that's what I thought I was supposed to think. Yeah, and I, and I think there's there are gradations of that. I mean, there's a there's a you know a case to be made, especially in newspaper journalism, for keeping the author out of it in the sense of right. you know not. Not putting your ego in there, not having mm-hmm. like, here's what I did next and, you know, that kind of thing. Unless it really actually matters in the story. And I just grew up doing very little of that and I've started occasionally doing a little more. But I've just – I have that mix of old school in me of just keeping myself out of the story. Any new journalism? Yeah. Well, I know, love not, new journalism. Not, you know, mm-hmm. I'm mixed about it to be frank. Really? You know, I think it can it, – it has an interesting flavor, narrative quality. I think it can very quickly become self-indulgent. Again, if done and badly. It also yeah. can turn the but, news or uh, turn the subject mm-hmm. into a story rather than reality. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, dangerous. I mean, to me, I don't, you know, I don't, I think that there's so many different ways to write well in the um, the people we use, we bring in, the quotes we use, but also just the actual, like, verb, adjective, Action, you know, the, the energy we give our words and the power we give our words in the writing can give it its own power and compellingness. But I think that sometimes too much attention gets, and here I'm speaking as a writer, yeah. <laughs> gets paid to uh, craft and narrative over content and mm-hmm. discontent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I mean, the two are not remotely mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. But, no, I think, but I do think that there is a little bit too much fixation these days on uh, on narrative. And I don't mean that narrative is not important. I don't mean that we shouldn't study it and we shouldn't utilize it. But I think that um, I rarely hear about, like, you know, journalistic conferences about the the actual stuff. Right. You know, like, like, like this story, just as, you know, the labor... Christ, you know, the, the crisis well, for American workers or, like, or poverty. You know, I went to a poverty journalism conference years ago and it was like... 
you know, and it was good stuff. It was like you really were talking about, you know, like people's lives. Well, um, I think it comes back to what we started out with. You didn't get into this to write pretty words. You got I into love it. pretty words, though. But that's actually. not what you do as a journalist, though. <laughs> right. I mean, and that's why right. I'm not a journalist. I wrote for a newspaper for seven years, but yeah. it was mostly as a columnist. I'm like, right. I'm, not, I'm no reporter. That's not interesting to me. And I don't mean to say that there's not a role even in my own work or desire in my own work to have um, nice words and well, good, I'm sure good that, writing. I'm sure that memoir reads um, differently. It reads a lot differently than you know the journalism. And, and again, with narrative, I don't mean to be like too naysaying about it because I think – I'm only speaking about it because I feel like it sometimes takes precedence over – conversations mm-hmm. about content in the journalism world. There's, it's all about craft and narrative and no longer about like well, what's actually happening in the world to, and to people and what can we do to write about that. Um, and again, both things are true. You can use narrative journalism to great effect to bring that out. So, so have you been freelance, a freelance journalist then for – 25 odd years <laughs> and they've been odd years yeah for free they call it for freelance <laughs> for freelance for freelance oh, yeah. the discontent uh, there's like a, there's a title in here somewhere the discontent the, the winter of our of discontent the podcast of our discontent oh, um, free yeah. so you came freelance. out to San Francisco early 90s early 90s bounced around but you know I was doing the occasional story for like Oakland Tribune a little bit of work for Center for Investigative Reporting um, a lot of temp work. <laughs> Me too. And, uh, Me too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> remember, when, remember when all the temps you met were all uh, actors and writers and oh, singers? Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of people wait tables. That's how they mm-hmm. made their way. Did I was too. a super fast typist. Yep. That was how I made my living exactly. many, many a time in temp jobs. And now exactly. they don't exist anymore because they're scanners. Yeah, thanks. Oh, yeah. You know, I actually remember I know, a job job. we were scanning documents all night. That's what we were doing. I've done that just, too, yeah. Ugh. It's like for a law firm or something. <laughs> Awful, yeah. Some big case and they'd oh, you've got to have a year from 7 to 7. But actually temping amidst you know, doing personal creative writing and the occasional article led to maybe my first big freelance article for The Nation in which was which was – Called Temps the Forgotten Workers. Oh, Ooh, I like it. A great title, and and I wasn't, you know, at all the first one to write about this. But what I did was I investigated the temp industry itself, which hadn't been done, um, to show like, okay, we all know temping sucks. Here's how it sucks. Believe it or not, there were actually like narrative pieces in the story, <laughs> and <laughs> turns of phrase even. But like, but you know, the point is. Um, you know, sort of like using my own experience because I remember I was like temping and I go in to get my paycheck and I see this brochure for the California Association for Temp Services. And I'm like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> and then you go from there and you dig in. And this is what I used to do much more of, you know, is investigating industries and like really getting inside like what are these groups about, you know, and what's, what are their interests and what are they lobbying on? Is that how you happened like, to write a book about the food industry? Uh Indirectly, I guess. I mean, I was I was doing actually investigative reporting in the mid '90s on welfare deform. I'd call it under Bill Clinton. Uh, and he these was, are all good hashtags. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hashtag, you know, welfare um, deform. Yeah, and and just I didn't make that up. I wish I'd made that. Oh. up. but <laughs> sorry, too late for that one. Yeah. Okay. Just like I didn't ride the rails, but <laughs> <laughs> I, the journalist in me. I'm sorry. You know, I try to be honest. <laughs> But um, but no, no like, honesty. No honesty allowed in this show. No, right, I'll start from here. Um, 
somebody's going to make up for Trump's relentless dishonesty and lying. You made it. But, but let me. Forty I, minutes no, before saying Trump. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. I think that's a good. That's pretty good for you. I just to finish this little thread. Um, so I was covering welfare reform, deform, Bill Clinton ending welfare programs, uh, which was really a disaster for for thousands and thousands of people, and or tens of thousands of people really, and. Um, I came across some really interesting stories about privatizing welfare, giving over contracts to Lockheed Martin and other corporations to run welfare programs. But in the midst of that, I came across this program that was sending uh, welfare recipients into chicken factories. Oh, my gosh. And the deal was you had to take the job. If you didn't take the job, you were off welfare. So it's keep your finger or keep uh, keep welfare. Thank you. No, I wish I had come up with that. Hashtag, <laughs> I'm, I'm hashtag keep, keep your keep, finger or keep, keep your keep welfare. Keep your um, check. Wait, no. Yeah, yeah, no, and it was and and so investigated that for the Progressive magazine did this big story on it and and what blew me away um, was just how unbelievably nightmarish and gruesome. Uh, chicken factory work was. Oh, yeah. So you went in and, and well, I have not read your book. I wish I had gone in. Um, okay. Now, how does this timeline me here on how yeah. this relates to Fast Food Nation? Right. Uh, I've never heard of that book. I don't know. What, what book? <laughs> what nation? <laughs> um, you mean Diet for a Dead Planet. <laughs> so I was investigating yes. these. these <laughs> he means where your book. Exactly. Oh, oh, you got where you were. Oh, okay. he, he knows how to. <laughs> And I was so, also thinking, so, yeah. yes, we did say the name of the book in the intro before you got here. I'm just... But <laughs> <laughs> so damn. Fun. But this so, happens. So, this, so yeah. this led into investigating the meatpacking industry, the chicken industry, and uh, and then the more... And then I, I went to Missouri. I did some speaking. I visited with farming, farming communities, farmers, and learned about all this other stuff that was... Basically, these corporations were going into these communities and creating this whole host of problems that wasn't just the workers. It was also just completely despoiling the land, the environment, putting farmers out of business. And it wasn't just these companies. It was the larger food economy and food politics. And so I became fascinated with this and felt like this was a really important story to tell that wasn't just about – one piece of the food industry or another. It wasn't just about uh, farm labor or fast food, which was a hugely important subject to write about, uh, or pesticides or GMOs. It wasn't just this piece. It was the entire, the mm-hmm. entirety of how food comes to us that is, and the Warriors and I called it Diet for a Dead Planet, not the most saleable title, <laughs> 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 clearly, <laughs> but uh, – <laughs> Regrets. Like people regrets. like fast food, they don't like dead. <laughs> they dead. don't. I, know. Uh, I mean, where's so the marketer? Dead. Like, uh, yeah. dead. No good in the title. <laughs> dead planet. Double bad. Yeah. But it was just that idea, just if, you know, was that, that, that um, you know, and it came from Diet for a Small Planet. Right. It's mm-hmm. Marla Pays, right. you know, and she signed off on that. And, and that and must have sold a lot. That sold a lot. I've owned a lot of one copy myself in my Three lifetime. For, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and this was sort of showing 35 years later how um, due to our entire food system, not just this bad company, that bad company or something, uh, and the whole system of how food gets to us and how it's grown and our policies and economy behind that, uh, we are we are killing ourselves. And, no other and, way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Pause, follow it. 
Well, so we're all depressed. We're all bummed <laughs> Station out. <now>. Break. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been generating, basically, as a freelance writer, you've been generating ideas for 25 years, right? Since we're getting toward the end, I'm going to let you talk about Trump. Well, because we, because one would think you would be tired, but you're not tired. But you're not tired. You're actually reinvigorated. Because you're doing a lot of work. I know. So let's talk about what you're up to now. Yeah. Thank you for telling me I'm not tired. <laughs> no, you're. Very well, you must not vibrant. be because yeah. you do you know, a lot. Try to try to get these stories out there. Uh, there's so many stories that keep crossing my my brain that feel important that I just can't get out. Um, but, but, you but know. then just to wrap up the writer activist so this, thing, yeah. your thing you're doing now. Yeah. I mean, well, so this this story, um, Trumping Labor, which came out in The Progressive recently in the March issue, um, was uh, an in-depth look. I don't know if you call it investigative, but very in-depth look at something that hardly anybody's writing about. There have been a couple other stories, but not much, um, about – what is sort of the full extent of Trump and, and also the Ryan Congress, not just Trump, the Ryan Congress agenda for workers? I mean, so many of these people are people who voted for Trump. Right. Uh, stereotypes aside, many of them did vote for Trump uh, in higher proportionality than in the past. And hmm. these very workers are, you know, under imminent threat from his policies, you know, not just the fact that he's going to give tax breaks to the rich and all these other things, but that the policies that he and Ryan Congress and and really comes out of the Heritage Foundation, so much of this stuff, um, that they're pushing forward and that's got getting very little attention are going to hurt workers' lives in the workplace. So less health and safety regulation. Right, of course. Rolling back standards on uh, beryllium exposure and arsenic exposure and that sounds uh, bad. It sounds bad. It is bad. <laughs> <laughs> Arsenic exposure. You know, fewer, fewer regulators, you know. Okay, so yeah. what you wrote, you, you're, you're focusing on this yeah. for journalism, to write stories about this. What do you think can happen? Oh, God. I mean, I mean, I guess this is the question, <laughs> central question of your career, right? Sure. I mean, this is, you know. Well, we divested from South Africa. A lot of those, a lot sure. of those schools did. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean. So much of this is like what becomes a major cause versus a sort of sideline issue. Interesting. Um, because I feel like the, the political bandwidth in this country is not wide. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so, mm-hmm. you know, there are certain things that we may, you know, we collectively, probably most people listening to the podcast uh, would want to see Trump fail at, you know, and, and, you know, in terms of just some of his policies. And there might be a few where we win. <laughs> You know, we pushed back temporarily on the travel ban, for instance. Um, And those are things where you just had massive amounts of energy put into that, massive amounts of concern, banner headlines all over the country, uh, and very real stuff that needed to be addressed ASAP. (laughs) Uh, Here's another whole set of issues that affects tens of millions of people. Okay, but here's the difference. With the travel ban, Mm -hmm. you have people who were already worked up, like, yeah. for example, yeah. um, who were ready to – who were already organized in some cases, mm-hmm. who were ready to rally. And then yeah. that happened and people – like the same women I knew who were marching on Washington mm-hmm. were at SFO, SFO yeah. protesting. Yeah. But what about for these workers? They aren't mm-hmm. organized anymore Especially a lot of the time. since you're not starting from – point zero, you're starting negative because they're exactly. convinced it's going to work out great. Right. So yeah. how yeah. are they – I mean – it's such a noble calling because mm. who is looking out for their rights then? If they're not yeah. doing it, 
and right. they aren't the organized. The doing it isn't doing it. And they're not part of labor. Right. It's pretty scary. I mean, that's why I've tended to try to look for stories that aren't being written about as much yeah. uh, and that I think are important and that affect a lot of people and that have concrete um, significance mm-hmm. <laughs> in people's lives. And that's not to say that the stories getting a lot of attention are not vitally important. They are. But I think that... Um, you know, and there are workers groups, you know, there are fewer unions, there are a lot of workers groups out there that are advocating like the Fight for 15 and other groups that are taking on. So it's not like an unheard of thing for people to be speaking up for and with workers and workers doing it themselves. But there's a lot even within that that doesn't get talked about. So the Fight for $15 minimum wage and maybe a couple other things are seen as the labor issues, the workers' issues. Right. What about all these issues like how many regulators are there going to be for health and safety in the workplace? You know, I did stories in like the year 2000, the story called Losing Life and Limb on the Job, that was all about, um, you know, just like rampant in, in injuries and, and people actually losing limbs and lives in the steel industry. But it was also about OSHA, the Safety and Health Administration, and how it would take them like 140 years to inspect every workplace in America, things like that. That's still true today. It's actually worse today. And and now it's going to be that much worse because of Trump. And they talk about regulation and bureaucracy getting in the way. And it's like, well, actually (laughs) – this isn't just sort of bean counters, you know, and some bean counting is actually important too. You gotta count beans. Beans. Yeah. You gotta count the beans. You could slip on them. You know, like like yeah, where is where is the uh, the chunk of chicken fat on the on the floor yeah. that didn't get picked up that somebody slips on? Um, I know this, Larry, because my father was a grocery store attorney. Yes, so I know. So slipping that. on beans is actually yeah. a real serious thing. problem. Yeah. Okay, you know, we're, we're actually running out of time here. I know we mm-hmm. could go on about this fair, but there's one thing I have to ask you that's been sitting in my head listening to you mm-hmm. talk, kind of recount your careers. Okay. So how do you measure success? Yeah. Personal success. Yeah. I mean, how do you know? Mm, good question. I mean, cause, especially because now, you know, we, we've, we've established, mm-hmm. you know, money's hard to come by in yeah. your field. Yeah. Uh, and now we've established, too, that you choose causes that not everyone's covering, which mm-hmm. means the, the probability of that coming to fruition is actually lower yeah. than if you picked at the low-hanging fruit. Right. So how can you tell? Is it a well-written story? Is it a little bit of movement on issues? I mean, you know, we, we're the worst judges of our own work, probably in every direction you can think of. Uh, and so it's hard for me to... I, I can I can sense when I when I did good work, even if it doesn't get a lot of recognition or or, or shares or clicks, but it's it's not going to feel like a success if it's not being read. You know, right. I, I might feel like you know I, I got some good work done here. I interviewed people that needed to speak and got these issues out there, but it's not really a success to me if people aren't reading it. I mean, that's the whole point. Um, and so, you know, these days we have all these metrics, you know, shares and likes and. <laughs> And, of course, we don't know if people are reading it. Right. Uh, I think very often like, they're not. And very often they're not, you know, and it's and – it's, so, you know, this story, Trumping Labor, actually got like more than – I think it's like – well, it's like 4,000 shares from the progressive website alone. And then Bill Moyer's website shared it and republished it, which is great. That's fantastic. Um, so that's – you know, that feels like a little success in the sense that it's getting around. It's not mm-hmm. – it's not getting around to the extent I would like in terms of getting – making this a, a much bigger issue because, again, you're talking about you know, tens of millions of workers, many of whom voted for Trump and it shouldn't matter who they voted for. 
having a less safe place to work, fewer rights on the job, less access to unions, uh, fewer protections if you're same-sex couples uh, for family and medical leave, um, fewer civil rights on the job if you're LGBT. Um, you know, all kinds of very basic things <laughs> that were expanded. And at this point, retracting. at this point in your career, is that really what drives you? The idea of seeing injustice, seeing something wrong, and trying to get the message out. Yeah, I, I don't see any alternative. I mean, I really don't. You know, I well, feel like interviewing Taylor Swift. Well, sure, for but you know, good <laughs> um, work if you can get it. Too. Yeah, yeah really. right. You know, yeah, but, you but it really, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, I, I'm willing to live with less money. I feel like the the pay gap in journalism between mm-hmm. those two is way too big, mm-hmm. and and yeah. totally not right. And I think there are ways to fix that. That we don't have time to talk about right now, but like, but I think that I'm willing. I'm willing to make less. I don't think it should be that less, but you know, I'm willing to make less money and live a more sort of spare life to do this work. And and I really, honestly, I would love to do other things. I love to do the creative writing work, but I don't see an alternative um, because this stuff is happening in the world to actual people and to the land, the environment, the future for our kids. You know. All of that stuff. And it's like, how can we not – we all have different ways to go at it for sure, you know. Mm-hmm. But again, it's whether you write or protest or whatever form you take, you know, in doing your work around it. But it just feels to me like injustice can sound like a, a label or a cause, but it's actually a reality that like somebody is actually suffering some – Unavoidable. I mean, avoidable, mm-hmm. <laughs> unnecessary <laughs> suffering. That was so beautifully said. And that wraps it up, Chris. Wow. Where can they find you? Mm. Thank you. I'm right here. Well, no. once you we open be. the door and lower <laughs> the temperature <laughs> by <laughs> 40 <laughs> degrees, <laughs> if we don't open the door soon, <laughs> soon we'll all be dead. We here, so. Be, yeah, <laughs> so where can they find yeah, you what online? Osha said. So, <laughs> you know, let's not go there. We're not going to even give the address. This my website is www.christopherdcook.com. That's christopherdcook.com. Um, check me out there and on Twitter at um, C-H-R-S-D-C-O-O-K. So it's like Chris D. Chris Cook. Cook, but with no I. Oh. Chris Cook. Cook. I hope you spelled your name correctly for Twitter. Unlike some people. Let me give you a chance to spell your name correctly <laughs> right now. How can they get a hold of you, co-host and writer, famous author? If you listen to my interview, you may have tried to follow me at a name that is not mine. <laughs> because Quinn, my name, is spelled with two N's. <laughs> or you can just follow Bridget at my Twitter account and, and that'll work too. So it's be Quinterest. With two ends. With two ends. <laughs> and she has her own website, which is BridgetQuinnAuthor.com. Also two ends. Also two ends. Bridget spelled like, I don't know. And her book is <laughs> Broad Strokes 15 Women Who Made Art and Made History in That Order. Yeah. And as for me, uh, you can find me at that Larry Rosen. And as I say every week, if you can't get enough of me, you can listen to my other podcast, Is It Good for the Jews? Find us at isitgoodforthejews.com. That's it for us this week, BQ. Oh, before I forget, you be? can send us an email, email. at grottopod at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at the grottopod. And the music is provided by Sugartown. Zoe Fitzgerald Carter, Grotto member. 
who is the best, and her band of fabulous locals. And her band. That's it. BQ, take us home. Read, write, and just keep working. 